Welcome to Boundless. And what we're going to be looking at uh, today, uh, really uh, a topic originating from uh, uh, a lesson we started last Thursday. So on Thursday, we were talking about managing my moods, managing your moods. How do we do that biblically? How do we look biblically at our emotions, the personality of God, not denigrating or ignoring our emotions, and yet not following them as if they're our authority, and how we do that properly. Now, we're not going to reteach that lesson. But during uh, that lesson, I was talking about some of God's traits, and one of the, God's character included God's righteous anger. It was just, I could have chose a number of things. I could have chosen God's love or his, his kindness or his goodness, but I chose his anger, which is a very real, righteous uh, attitude and character trait of God's. And, you know, I noted the spirit of God that could be grieved. I noticed, we noted that Jesus, the son, wept. And then in describing the father's righteous anger, I noted God's hatred for sin and his hatred for the sinner. Does anybody remember my my statement there? Um, God's hatred for uh, the sinner. And that left a number of you with, with some questions, like, does God really hate sinners? I mean, that kind of arrests our attention, doesn't it? That's something we aren't used to necessarily hearing. And Clay, especially, you know, Clay is our normal, normal, normal teacher. When he gets a few questions, or if I have the opportunity to teach and I get a few questions, it probably means there's probably more questions out there than I've, what I've heard so far. So I thought we would take some time and look at that together to see what, um, what the anger of God or his wrath or his hatred towards sinners really means. Now, first of all, I want to say one thing. We, we thank the Lord for questions you have about the word and what is taught. What a blessing. That it's not just something that kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah, I didn't understand that, but that's all right. You know, we're just kind of, the day will go on and we'll live another day and da-da-da-da-da. But praise God, you've got spiritual antennas that are up and that they care and has a concern to properly interpret and know what God has to say. Not take it for Clay's word, not take it for mine, not take it for any pastor or teacher for what they have to say, but you go back to the word of God. Acts 17.11, Paul and Barnabas were on a missionary journey. They came from Thessalonica to Berea, and they entered the, the Jewish synagogue, and this is what they said. Now, in Acts 17, verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They heard the word. Of course, that was the Old Testament at this time, but they were hearing the word of God. They received it with eagerness, and then they examined the scriptures to see if these things were really so. What a privilege, what an honor. May you continue to ask questions, seek to understand and know what God has to say and find that out through his precious word. Secondly, you know, with feedback like we get like that, I should have been more clearer in my lesson. You know, sometimes you're kind of going along and that's not the topic at hand, God's hatred for sinners. God's righteous anger, we're talking about managing our moods, and you know, perhaps it would have been smarter for me to choose a different trait at that moment, and yet I know God's providence um, in using that opportunity to now go deeper into a, a, a topic here that I believe is important. So, um, yes, it's, it, it, you know, I, I should have been more wise with that, I just want to let you, you, you know that, that I have to be careful not to just kind of pull the pin and throw the grenade and, and then keep rolling. Uh, when there's not really time to cover it well. And we'll try to do that a little bit better today. Nehemiah, when, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, when God's people returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, <clears throat> there was a spiritual revival that, that broke out. And after Ezra, the priest, brought out the book of the law and read it before the people, um, in Nehemiah 8.8 8, it says this, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people 
understood the reading. That's the purpose of preaching. That's the purpose of reading. It's not just to dispense truth, but it's, try, it's, it's an attempt to make it as clear as possible. And I know this, this guy right here standing in front of you today, doesn't, he tries his best, okay? And may the Spirit of God pick up the pieces where it's not as clear as it should be, but our goal is to make it as clear as possible that God may use it and, and start and continue revival in our own hearts. And I'm thankful for TBC, its unwavering commitment to teaching the Word of God and doing these, these very things. And so today, in light of Pastor Clay's absence, I thought this would be a great providential opportunity to provide some explanation to the phrase, God hates sinners. Do I feel like I have a little echo or I'm inside a tin can? I feel like, is, do I sound okay? All right, great. Thank you. All right, as long as you can hear me, it just sounded like a little, hmm. All right, so today, wow, here we go. God's righteous hatred. Probably not the top five in your Christian broadcast uh, list, okay? The podcast that you listen to on a regular, hey, let's, let's hear about God's righteous hatred today. I've always wanted to know about that. Um, and yet as we look at it today, um, you know, it's our desire to teach the whole counsel of God. And since I did pull the grenade and the pin out of the grenade and threw it, okay, let's continue on with this, this passage here and be edified by what God's word has to say. So with that, today, we're going to look at five biblical principles of God's righteous hatred. Five principles of God's righteous hatred. And the first one we're going to look at is this. God hates wickedness and all forms of evil. God hates wickedness and all forms of evil. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, You are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Now, God's hatred of sin, his aversion to evil, it's probably not something that comes at a big surprise to most of you gathered here today. God hates sin. God hates evil. God hates every inclination and thought and action of any wrong doing. All wickedness is hated. It's not a surprise about this because we know that all lawlessness is an affront to God's righteous standard. It's a violation of his holy law and it's rebellion of his rightful authority. If you have your Bibles here, you can go to Proverbs uh, Proverbs chapter 6. I didn't have enough time in putting the slides together to give a lot of the scripture verses behind me here on the slides, so you'll have to use your fingers and hands a little bit more today or your smartphone to move the the scriptures around a little bit. But probably a passage here you've seen before, uh, Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. We see some things the Lord hates. He says here in verse 16, Proverbs 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Wow, God hates sin. He hates these things. They're an abomination. He has an aversion to them. They are intolerable to him. And, of course, this is one list of many sins we could share today. We know them all, don't we? And we experience them in our own lives, don't we? In fact, we learn to hate our own sin as well. But that hatred being made in the glory of God and now having, being made in the image of God and now having the spirit of God gives us, a, 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 in, in many ways, a common hatred for sin as God does. Not, not to his extent, of course, but a hatred as our adversary and the thing we so want to mortify in our lives. Now turn to Psalm 5, verse 4. We'll be in Psalm 5 a little bit. Turn to uh, Psalm 5. Psalm chapter 5, or the fifth psalm, and draw your attention over to verse 4. And you'll see another declaration of God's hatred for sin. Psalm 5, verse 4 says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell 
with you. God hates sin. As I look at a psalm like that, I'm convicted because I often in my life don't hate sin like I should. I get cozy with it. It's almost just like my, my wicked friend that I want to keep in my closet and stay cozy with and not allow the light to touch and, and, and keep in the, the dark recesses of my heart, my unredeemed flesh. This is not so with God. There is no evil in God. There is no dark closet. There is no secret sin. There is no evil thought. He hates sin. Psalm 101, verses 3 and 4 says this, uh, a plea not to think evil or to do evil by the psalmist. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. What a great prayer. Lord, I just want to hate evil like you. I don't want it clinging to me. I don't want it to be a part of my life. I will not set my, before my eyes anything that is worthless. When, when I was in college, your age, oh so long ago, uh, I was living with two other guys um, in an apartment, and uh, I, this verse came across here and uh, with one of my roommates. I don't know why I just chose one to talk to about this, but... Uh, I said, you know, this would be a nice thing we could put on, you know, a little placard on our TV set. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless or wicked, right? And I, I did that. I wrote it out, and I just, you know, a little half-sheet piece of uh, cardboard and put it there, and so we're flick through the channels for something. It's kind of like, oh, that's worthless. That's not good. Well, maybe we'll just turn off the TV tonight, right? <laughs> and go do something that's better, because uh, there's not a lot of edifying stuff I'm finding unless, you know, it's Ohio State or a football team I'm looking for. <laughs> Sorry, Jack. But, um, yeah, it, it, the funny thing about it is the third roommate, I didn't talk about this. I kept, I kept seeing that placard, like, placed behind the TV every time I come into the apartment. And it's like, no, that's too convicting. And then they kept disappearing, you know. It's like, okay, uh, we got to talk about this. Let's all, let's all strive together here. But God hates sin. That's our first point. He hates wickedness in all forms of evil, as we think of five biblical principles of God's righteous hatred. But here's the, here's the next one. Number two, God also hates those who practice wickedness. God also hates those who practice wickedness. Now, if you're still in Psalm 5, we're going to read the next two verses that you know, should arrest your attention here. They already said, evil may not dwell with you. You're not a God who delights in wickedness. But now listen to this. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. The boastful, the sinners, arrogant sinners, right? You hate all evildoers. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In the ESV, it says God hates all evildoers. In New King James, you hate all workers of iniquity. NASB, you hate all who do iniquity. And you look at a statement like that, and perhaps that just strikes you. That gets your attention, doesn't it? That God hates evildoers. God hates sinners. I mean, it, it, there could be something that should, in some ways, in our unredeemed flesh, just contradict our sensibilities, Right? Uh, there, there, you know, we, we, we look at that, it's just like, why? why? Why is this statement so shocking? Maybe we should think about that, because it says it right here in Scripture. And I have three thoughts here. Maybe there's more. You know, first we know from Scripture is God is love. It's one of his predominant traits as God. His disposition of love, his character trait, his attribute of love that flows out the goodness and and, and, and working together with forbearance and patience and kindness and benevolence and all the wonderful mercies and goodness and graces of God that we receive. And if God is a God of love, this seems so contradictory. Hate is so opposite of love. Secondly, it's one thing for God to hate sin 
And sin is our arch enemy, is it not? And our hope is, is one day we'll be fully free from it. It's our desire to be like Jesus, but it's quite another thing for God to hate the sinner. I mean, I'm doing my best here, right? But how, hey, how can God hate the sinner? Doesn't he just hate the sin? This is especially when the scriptures call us as God's people to love others, even our enemies. I'm, I'm not called to hate anyone. I'm to love them. So it seems contradictory, doesn't it? And thirdly, when God created man, he called it good, right? Man was created in the image of God, and man was the pinnacle of God's creation. And so how could now God hate the very thing he once called good? Well, some of you have answers for some of those, and other than perhaps not. And those are things we're going to look at today that I trust the scriptures will help us out with. Now, as we flesh out this statement in Psalm 5, God hates all evildoers. Let's note something by looking down a little further there in verse 9. Go, go down there. Psalm 5, verse 9. It says there, For there is no truth in their mouth, speaking about the sinners, the evildoers that God hates. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Is there a passage in the New Testament that kind of comes to mind when you hear that language? What would it be? Romans 3. Good. Some of you guys have been paying attention on Sunday mornings as pastors marching through Romans. Go to Romans 3. You might want to keep your finger there in Psalm 5. But if you jump over to Romans 3, we'll see this passage cited. And Paul references that there in really a rather uncomplimentary but accurate assessment of sinful man, us. And if you look there in Romans 3, verse 9, you see, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we, all have, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, as we know, right? Verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. In our corrupt nature, we are the evildoers, aren't we? We all fall short of the glory of God. There is no one, whether you're a law keeper or whether you're one without the law and the law is written on your heart, a Gentile, we are lawbreakers and there's no one righteous. Verse 11, and here's, here's all the, the descriptions of corrupt, the, cor, the corrupt man, the way we're born. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you see this reference here. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Here's talking about the open grave. I mean, when, when someone's buried, it's, it's, it's closed, right? I mean, things don't go well when something dies, right, that was once living. There's a stench. It's, it's putrefying. It's, it, it, it's, it's ugly, and it needs to be buried. But here it's saying, well, the, the description of our sinful hearts, the things that come out of our mouths, right, uh, display what's in the heart, that scriptural principle. And here it's like we just show our corruption by the things we say and what we do and the sinfulness in our hearts. And it's like an open grave to the sinner. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined. And, and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So here, in, if we think about this passage here and the description of sinful man, we see this tie between Psalm 5 and Romans chapter 3. This corruption, this corruption was present in the Old Testament and it's present in the New Testament as well, as we all know. There is none righteous, no, not one. And it's these very sins that God still hates. And it's these very sinners, evildoers, doers of wickedness that God hates as well. It's not just an Old Testament principle. It's something carried over into the new. In all our efforts to display some kind of goodness, a measure, some kind of measure of right in our eyes, we're just blown away here. God puts a spotlight on our sin, and it isn't pretty. And we have, bound, we have been found unfit, 
and there is none who are righteous. And this condition makes sinful man completely unacceptable to a righteous and holy God. And again, this is certainly what we see in Psalm 9, God's utter rejection of sin in sinful man, a hatred for sin and the sinner, because there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, this word hate in the Hebrew, I should get Hayden, Hayden's learning Hebrew right now, maybe a few others here um, with some of this, I'm no Hebrew uh, expert, but uh, I still like to noodle into it when I need to here, and with, with hate, the Hebrew word, the root of it actually carries the idea of an ugliness or a deformity, not very pleasant to look at to the eyes, right? And hence to regard with feelings that are contrary to love. It's the opposite of love. It's contrary to love. Either something's attractive and you set your, your heart on it and you love it and you, and you commit to it, or there's something that's repulsive. It's deformed. It's, it's, it's got ugliness. And therefore, to hate is to abhor or to loathe or to cherish a dislike to. Piper, uh, John Piper put it this way, when God hates sinners, he says God infinitely disapproves of them. He, he infinitely disapproves of them, this hatred. You know, think again of Romans 3, God hates sin, God hates the sinner. It speaks, it speaks profoundly, doesn't it, to God's absolute conviction in belief, aversion to the seriousness of sin. Sin is serious stuff. We can't be cozy with sin and cozy with God at the same time. It doesn't work that way. God hates sin. He loathes it. Okay, And for the unredeemed sinner... He cannot accept the unredeemed sinner because of their sin. They are alienated from him. They can't have fellowship with God. They can't come behind the curtain before the holies of holies, if you will, before his throne of grace. It can't come before his presence without the blood covering of the Savior. We're going to get to the good news here eventually, okay? Uh, I feel like Pastor Fair a little bit when he was going through the first... Romans two and a half chapters, it's like, I can't wait to get a little further here. Was, but God gives us a righteousness that's not our own. But before that, it ain't, it ain't pretty. It's ugly. It's deformed. It's not right. And God sees not only the sin, but the sinner is loathsome. He cherishes a dislike to it. It's abhorring to him. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Sin is serious. God cannot accept it. He cannot accept sin. He cannot accept the sinner without something that intervenes. Okay? That's outside ourselves. One, one writer said this, that God's hatred for evildoers occurs 14 times in just the first 50 Psalms alone, 14 times, God's hatred for evil doers. Now, hate, you know, one theologian I respect and was, was reading one of the systematic theology uh, uh, books is uh, hate is not an attribute of God. You know, it's not like love as an attribute of God. As though it's something, you know, hate is not, so it's not, not something that God exhibits uh, towards the sin and and, and sinner, it makes sense to me that, that this would not be an attribute of his. We know God is love. That's a predominant attribute of his. And God has demonstrated love amongst the Godhead for all eternity. You know, love didn't initiate with God at the creation. If it did, then he needed man to complete himself, right? There's love in the Godhead. This is something you just kind of chew on a little bit another time. Maybe I'm throwing another grenade here. I'm not sure. But uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed f- perfect fellowship for all eternity, loving one another, giving glory to one another. They had perfect relationship together for all eternity. And then they made man to exhibit more of that love. And, of course, when we sinned, we rejected that. God, you know, love is a predominant feature, character trait, attribute of God, but hate is not. 
but flowing out of God's character, and we'll get to his righteousness and his holiness and his purity here in a moment, flowing out of other character traits is a hatred for all that is wicked. And that includes wickedness for doers of wickedness. And that leads to our, our next point here, okay? Five biblical principles of God's righteous hatred. And that is God is holy and just. And therefore, he must judge evildoers. He must. In God's righteous and holy character, he not only hates what is wicked and evil and all that is sinful, he must also take action against evil and all who practice evil. Now ask, your, excuse me, ask yourself, what does it say about, what would it say about God if he did not render a judgment or punish or condemn sinners? What would that say about our God? Well, for one thing, it would say he's corrupt, right? It would be a declaration by God that the practice of evil is permissible. Despite all he has to say about his law and him as the lawgiver and his righteousness, God himself would be complicit with the practice of sin and acceptance of evil and just wink an eye. He cannot wink at sin. He would not be truly holy and righteous. He would be an unrighteous judge. Now, that might make sense to us in theory here. Um, And, you know, it's especially true when some injustice has been perpetrated against us, right? I mean, not one of us will want a little slack from God when it's our sin. But when we're sinned against, oh, Lord, come down, please. (laughs) May your wrath, I'm counting on you, Lord, I won't seek it myself, but definitely toast that guy, okay? Okay. I remember your age again. I look at you guys, I think of fond memories of my past, right? And uh, I'm in my dorm room. It's a secular college. I was a picture guy, had a nice camera. I would take pictures for a few pictures of the sports teams. I enjoyed, enjoyed doing that. And one day I was in my dorm room alone, and um, I had to go to the restroom, went down the hall, shut the door, but I didn't lock it. Came back, and my camera was wasn't there anymore. And unfortunately, I didn't know who to ask God to torch because I didn't see who did it. <laughs> but God still knows. Uh, uh, your conscience, your, your, your inner self, it's pricked, right? It's like, I, I was sinned against, and this needs to be made right. And, you know, we, we, have, that sense of, we have that sensibilities ourselves, and we think, well, shouldn't God feel that way? The perfect God of the universe, the perfect judge, the righteous one who's never thought sin, done sin, hates evil, hates evildoers, and he's just supposed to wink an eye at sin and not punish? Of course not. God hates sin. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is our nature. It's the nature of man. We rebel and suppress truth and cling to our sin, our unrighteousness. Ephesians 5, 6 says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, our sin, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God, listen to this, God does not pour his wrath on those he approves of, but rather on those he rejects. You know, one thing that perhaps gives some confusion to God hates sinners is, well, God doesn't God hate the sin but love the sinner? It's a phrase I use, I've heard, perhaps it's been mentioned at the church. You, you perhaps use it yourself. God, you know, hate the sin but love the sinner. And I believe the phrase is intended to perhaps help us realize that we need to treat and love those who are still in rebellion against God. And we do. We need to love them. And it's helped me to remember that sin is hated by God. Hate the sin, love the sinner. And these things are absolutely true. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved, and we're called to love sinners as well. And he sent that son because people need salvation from their sin, the sin God hates. 
But take care here. The phrase should not mislead us into presenting that God's hatred and subsequent wrath is directed only towards sin and not the sinner. Nor should it tempt us to blunt or compromise the truth about the destiny of the unrepentant sinner. And that's hell. God hates sin. It is not sin that he, it's not sin that he will punish. He punishes sinners. Listen to this uh, quote by John Piper. Sinful volitions are owing to sinful hearts. Sin doesn't just hang out there with its own existence. It is in the hearts or it is nothing. Sins do not suffer in hell. Sinners suffer in hell. And we kind of want to, we want to blunt the rough edges here, the sharp ones, right? God's judging sin. Now just believe on Jesus because he has a wonderful plan for your life. And if some of that sin comes with you, well, he hates it, but the blood's going to cover it. Those are true statements, guys. But we don't do any favors to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in saving a sinner by, by hiding the fact that God rejects them because of their sin. Now, I'm not advocating going to your friend who doesn't know the Lord and say, well, God hates you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> uh, probably not the best introduction, all right? That's not what I'm looking for. There's certain things we stay away from. You don't go into election and, you know, there's just truths of Scripture that there's, there's better ways to say that. But don't put it to the point where, well, God's just going to, you know, it's your sin, you know, that God hates. No, he, he hates the sinner. And he must punish the sinner. And this sinner will experience the righteous wrath of God for all eternity. The sinner will, not the sin. It's the sinner. Because of God's hatred for sin, that's in the sinner. Okay? Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul declared to the unrepentant sinner in Romans, but because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You ever think of this, Matthew 5.48, that God's standard for all mankind is perfection? God's standard is perfection? Verse 48 of Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, that's, that's a tough order. I can't do that. I fall so very short. And realizing this, how far we fall short because of our sin, the sin God hates, and the wrath that is upon a sinner, because of this sin, I have no hope outside of Christ. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to suffer for these sins. I want to be made right. Why? Because his wrath, his crosshairs are on me, the sinner, not just my sin, okay? So I desperately need a savior. Mankind desperately needs forgiveness. They desperately need a righteousness that is not their own. There's a common thinking today that is more secular and humanistic than it is biblical. God is seen more as our buddy. And because of his love, he'll just overlook and tolerate what I consider to be minor offenses against him and his law and his word. In other words, he kind of treats sin more like a cold, kind of like a minor illness. Or even, you might say, a disorder of sorts that's created dysfunctionality in our lives. And this is not the main issue. Our issue is that not, my, not that my sins are holding me back from all that I can or want to be, as if God sent his son to reorder my life merely to serve me and my interest, that he is somehow here to wait on me to ensure my success or to guarantee my comfort, plans, and dreams. In this mistaken view of God, he's viewed more like a therapist or a life coach. 
He's like the iron that can just straighten out the wrinkles in my shirt and my character flaws. Like he only cares about my success in school or my grades, my personality weaknesses. And we know a good God cares about so many things, but guys, this isn't the main thing, is it? There's a false gospel that God is relegated to the one who gives me seven habits for successful living or that you can live your best life now. J.C. Riles is one of those dead guys that's really quotable, okay? Uh, good stuff. Um, you might want to take a picture of this because we won't stay here very long. It's a long quote. Sorry about that, but I just thought it was just good. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy but not just. A God who is all love but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for no one. A God who can allow good and bad to be side by side in time, but will make no distinction between good and broad in eternity. Such a God is an idol of your own as truly an idol as any snake or crocodile in an Egyptian temple. The hands of your own fancy and sentimentality have made him. He is not the God of the Bible. And beside the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. God hates sin. God hates the sinner. God is holy and just. He must judge sinners. They must be rejected. They are unacceptable in God's sight. Well, let's go to our next point here. Let's look at five biblical principles of God's righteous hatred, and that's the great paradox. We start kind of entering in some of the good stuff here, necessary stuff. That's, that's the stuff that kind of fills in the pieces, right? The paradox. God both hates and loves sinners. God both hates and loves sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, you're familiar with. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen and amen. God chose to love sinful man in the sending of his son to love unlovable sinners. He chose to love sinners who are rebels and wicked who themselves commit the sin he so loathes. As you think about this, here's a quote from John Frame. You think about election, we think of God's predestination. Pastor, if you weren't at the early service, he'll go to Romans 8 and he'll give you the, he'll touch on that a little bit today, talking about just the glory of salvation from the call of the sinner all the way to the glorification how it's a work of God that, yes, we must respond to in faith and repentance or else there is no salvation. And yet, without the work of God, we're just an enemy. There's nothing we can do. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And you might be thinking, well, does God hate the elect? Does God hate, did he hate me at one time as a believer? I thought this was instructive. Before an elect person is converted, God both loves, both loves and hates him. God opposes him prevents him in the long term from achieving his wicked purposes. But for such a one, God also has glorious blessings in store. A familiar passage. Why don't you turn here? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. When we went through Ephesians in Boundless, I guess that was the year before last, wasn't it? How time flies. You might remember this passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is not a platitude, all right? Just kind of like, yeah, you were once a bad guy. Now you're good. In Christ, okay? Truths, you're good now in Christ. You are perfect now in Christ. You are saved now in Christ. But you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You weren't exceptional. We weren't different. 
Oh, I love those but God statements in the Bible. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, there was wrath and there was love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So prior to God reaching down and saving me or you, before I exercised faith in God and repentance from my sin, I was a child of wrath. I was at enmity with God. Everlasting punishment was assigned to me and you, and we were hell-bound. But God loved. And so we see both hatred and love that God exhibits towards the sinner. It is out of God's mercy that he loves. And there's other passages and things we could go to, many more things, but just to keep things moving along as time is moving along. We'll go to five biblical principles of a righteous hatred. And the final one here is Jesus Christ is our only hope of being reconciled to God. He is our only hope. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. An amazing thought. God, in his utter and absolute holiness and purity that will not permit any hint of sin in his presence, the God who must punish the evildoer, the guilty will not go unpunished. This same God offers the ultimate antidote, the only solution, and it came at great cost from God himself in the giving of his only son. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And we can say along with Paul with great assurance and great confidence that there is now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are going to the later service today, you'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's a commemoration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you can come before him and just pour out your heart in gratitude. I was once an enemy. The sin I cherish and I just don't want in my life anymore is something he died for. And he didn't have to. He would have been completely just and right to stay an enemy and hater of my sin and me and send me to hell, to a righteous judgment and punishment. But God so loved the world. (laughs) He gave his son. Glory in that today. We give praise and glory to the God of mercy and grace for sending his son for lost sinners, the just and the justifier of my sin. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As time's getting away here, let's take a few takeaways, all right, thinking about today's lesson, all right? These will be brief because we only have a few minutes here. A few takeaways of God's righteous hatred. And the first one's this. Praise God for the wonder of your salvation. Praise God for the wonder of your salvation. A book I like called The Gospel Primer, great manual for devotions, just rehearses gospel truths to help think good things about the gospel and to help us not to think wrong things about our identity in Christ. And Vincent said this, the, the gospel is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous, according to my conscience, and so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. There is simply no other 
way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with rehearsings of the gospel. That's why we celebrate communion. Remind ourselves of these gracious truths where once I was at enmity, I am now a friend. Where once I was the enemy, I now sit at the table with the king. And that gives us great hope for our future and certainly our life today. Secondly, another takeaway, Christ's followers are to be characterized by love. They're to be characterized by love. Jesus instructed his disciples on how they should treat haters of God and consequently those who hated them. Luke 6.27 says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That's a tough calling, isn't it? And yet, here we're emulating the very thing Christ did for us. Those who hate God and those who hate the gospel, God reached out to in love. And it continues in verse 35 and 36 of Luke 6, but love your enemies and do good and lend, accepting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, and he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Number three, another takeaway. Sensitize your heart for the condition of lost sinners. Sensitize your heart. Psalm 73, you might want to write down, just jot, and maybe read that at some time. But here, the psalmist is envious of the wicked, seeing how they're just moving right along, and everything's fine, and they mock God and his word and his followers. And then the psalmist straightened out himself. He confronted himself, his emotions, his feelings that were wrong, his, what he was actually believing in the moment. He remembered their end, that it wasn't going to end well for those that are having a party now because in the end it's no party at all. And he addressed his heart. He preached truth to himself. And rather than running with his emotions, he redirected them with the truth and yielded himself to it. We need a heart for lost sinners knowing that God is, he hates the sin, he hates the sinner, and he must judge the sinner. And oh, we have the, we have the antidote, don't we? For the one that has the incurable cancer and there's a drug that solves it, oh, why would we keep that away? Oh, we would run and give it to help them in their time of need. And although many will reject and many will hate and many will understand, we stay committed, don't we? Knowing that God will use the truth in people's hearts that are ready to hear the truth by his, by his work and not ours. So our job is just to share. Love, care, concern. Sensitize your heart to the condition of sinners, knowing about their end, which is absolute and true. Remember, God's not judging sin in hell, it's sinners, okay? Number four, increase your own hatred for sin and evil. Maybe today you thought, wow, I've been playing around with stuff I shouldn't be messing around with. Don't we all struggle with just besetting things that just, it's like a, a movie that just keeps running over and over again, and it's hard, it's difficult. And we, we, we need God's grace, and we need his help, and we... We need to recommit ourselves. And some things we just haven't been committed to. We just allow things to go, thinking God will wink an eye at that. And friends, oh, what, what a privilege. We have a spirit of God. We can walk in newness of life. We'll see these baptisms tonight, and we see those that have gone down with Christ, and they've come up. They're in union with Christ. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, read Romans 6, because you have died with Christ, and you are raised with him. And sin is no longer your identity. It's Christ. Recommit to hating sin like God does and the evil that he loathes. And I think this is the final one. Long for our future home with our Savior in heaven. Long for it. You know, when we're cozy with this life and with sin, you know, we, we look at a verse as like the hope of our future, uh, looking ahead to when the struggle is over, and it's like, well, I don't, I don't really want to give this up. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy things here too much. 
And it just may mean that, number four, we just haven't hated sin enough or recognized its consequences and maybe not really thought about God's utter hatred for it. Long for that future home with our Savior in heaven. If you're going to the next service, you'll, you'll get a view of this again and look forward to what God is doing in your life and mine where one day this will be over. If you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, he no longer hates you. You're a son. You're part of the family of God. You have been fully accepted. And when he sees you, he no longer sees an enemy. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Make no mistake, though. Sinners without Christ are hopeless without Christ. Glory in the salvation we have today, knowing that God once hated me, and now he loves me as his son. Let's close. Father, thank you for the truths of your word. Lord, these are things we would never think or know or understand without you just revealing themselves to us. Thank you, Lord, for this this gift of truth and revelation to know our sinful state, our rebelling against you, and our need for restoration through the love that was poured out to us in the giving of Christ, his death, his resurrection, the fact that he intercedes for me today. Thank you, Lord, that once an enemy, now a friend. We praise you. We thank you for the glory of the wondrous salvation that turns hate to love for the sinner who by faith and in repentance turns to you. And if there's anyone here tonight that's just like, that's me. I need to turn to God in faith. I need to trust Christ in what he did. I don't want to stay in a place where God loathes me and hates me and I'm an object of his wrath. I want to be his friend. I want things restored. I want things reconciled. I want my sin forgiven. Oh, Lord, May they trust you in simple faith today, turning their heart, their life to you based on the finished work of Christ alone for forgiveness, absolutely free, absolutely of grace, nothing of ourselves, all of Christ. Forgive them of their sin. Make them a child. Renew their heart. Bless these folks here today as they go on to church or other things today. We glory in what you've done, in Christ's name, amen.